We are in a series that, that is called Resolute, and Resolute means that Jesus is resolutely setting his face toward Jerusalem. He knows that he has an appointment that was set from the time of the creation of the world where Jesus was actually going to be the sacrifice for our sins. He knows he's going to the, to the cross in Jerusalem. He knows his time is short. He has his date with destiny. And he knows that he needs to communicate some spiritual truths to his followers. So they'll know how to have a right relationship with God. So they will know how to relate correctly with a holy living God. Today we're gonna to talk about pride. We're gonna talk about the perils of pride. We're going to talk about the grace that is found when we humble ourselves before God. To talk about pride, uh, my favorite short little joke about pride is this. It says, pride is like bad breath. Everybody knows you have it except you. <laughs> I also have a golfing story for you. I don't know if Gary's still in the room or not, but this is a golfing story about Arnold Palmer, right? It's not just a, you know, some of you guys don't know golf at all. You think of Arnold Palmer as like a drink at a restaurant, you know, iced tea and lemonade. No, it was actually named after a person, and uh, he doesn't just do Quaker State commercials. He was actually a champion golfer back in the day. 1961, the Masters in Augusta, Georgia. In fact, it's coming up in just a couple of weeks. I imagine that Rick Rivers probably has that already recorded on his TV. The Masters Tournament. So this golfing story, listen, let me take a swing at it. I'm going to tell it to you. But um, it was the final hole. It was the final hole at the 1961 Masters Tournament in Augusta, Georgia. You know, they play this tournament each year in the spring, and it's beautiful near the Georgia-South Carolina uh, border, one of the most beautiful golf courses and the most exclusive golf courses that you could ever play in the United States. In that year of 1961, there was a young South African named Gary Player. He was uh, golfing extremely well. He finished his final round. He was waiting at the end of the 18th green to see how golfing, you know, young golfing, but already almost legendary status in, at this time, Arnold Palmer, how he was going to finish out his round. Arnold Palmer had already won the Masters Tournament twice before in 1958 and 1960. And going into the 18th hole of the final round, Palmer had a two-stroke lead on the young South African Gary Player. He was feeling confident. And then something happened. This is from Arnold Palmer's own words. He says, I had a one-stroke lead, and it hit a very satisfying tee shot. So I was feeling good. I felt I was in good shape. And as I approached my ball on the fairway, I saw an old friend standing at the edge of the gallery. And he motioned me over, and he stuck out his hand, and he said, congratulations. Now, do you see the problem here? He's congratulating him as if he's already won this thing. And I took his hand, and I shook it. And as soon as I did, I knew that I just lost my focus. On my next two shots, I hit the ball into the sand trap. I then put it over the edge of the green. I would have felt right at home with this guy because that sounds exactly what I do on most every hole. 
But this is a championship golfer, right? And it's at, it's, he's at the final round of the Masters. And so he hits the ball in a sand trap. Then he puts the ball over the edge of the green. Then he finally gets it on the green. And he misses a 15-foot putt that would have tied Gary Player and gone into a, a, a playoff round. He missed the putt. He lost the Masters. Arnold Palmer says this, you don't forget a mistake like that. You just try to learn from it and become determined that you will never do that again. And I haven't done that in the 30 years since. So even a legendary golfer like Arnold Palmer, you can lose your focus, you can get overconfident, and when you do, bad things happen. Overconfidence can lead to your downfall. So back to Jesus now. He's on his way to Jerusalem. He knows he has an appointment, a destiny with a cruel Roman cross, an instrument of torture and punishment that was reserved for only the worst criminals. Jesus is doing a lot of teaching now between Luke chapter 9 when it says he resolutely set his face forward toward Jerusalem and next Sunday when you're going to see me here and Lisa here and we're going to talk about Palm Sunday and Jesus coming into Jerusalem and, and everything that happened in the final week of his ministry. Um, Jesus has a lot to communicate to his disciples. He's trying to tell them about the truth of the kingdom of God. He wanted to make sure that we were right in our focus when we come before God. Now, this is, a, this is a great parable. It's found in Luke chapter 18. Luke 18, verses 9 to 14. You can follow along in your own Bibles. We also have some scripture up on the screen. What I love about this parable, because a lot of times you get a parable and sometimes you read it and you say, hmm, I wonder what Jesus meant by that. Here's Jesus coming and he says, hey, by the way, before I even tell you this parable, I'm going to tell you what it means. So look what it says here in verse 9. To some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else, Jesus told this parable. It's not every parable that Jesus gives you the point of the story before he even tells you the story. Two men, verse 10, two men, sounds like two men walk into a bar, right? Two men go up to the temple to pray. One was a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. Right? So now Jesus is comparing two people in Jewish society. If a Jewish person was in the audience listening to Jesus, he would say, oh, well, this is great. The first one is, a, is an awesome religious leader, very dedicated to God, very pious, very uh, disciplined religiously. Somebody who's in good standing with God, a Pharisee. And then there's this other dirtbag on the, on the other side of the comparison, this tax collector, this somebody who sold out to the Roman government for money and said, I'd rather make money and betray my own people than I would live a life, uh, a good Jewish life pleasing to God. So you have these two people on these opposite ends of the spectrum. But what I'm trying to say and what Jesus is saying is here is two men went up to pray, but only one man returned from prayer justified before God. Only one man returned from prayer that had his prayer answered positively by God. <clears throat> religious people in Jerusalem, it says two men went up to the temple to pray. Now, religious people went up to pray in Jerusalem all the time. If you lived in Jerusalem, the place that you wanted to go to pray would be where? It would be the temple, right? And the temple had a, a very large area. The temple had lots of places where almost anybody in society, whether even, and by the way, you may not know this, whether you were Jew or Gentile, the temple was a good place to go to pray. 
They had a place called the court of the Gentiles. They had another inner court inside that walled in called the court of the women. And then inside that, they had the court of the men. And then after that, you had to be a priest to go further into the temple. It became more and more and more of an exclusive club. But even if you were a Gentile at the time, you could at least get into the court of the Gentiles. So two of these men went up to pray. Of course, one was a Pharisee, one was a tax collector. At the temple uh, schedule every day, there were two times when prayers were offered. One was offered in the morning sacrifice at 9 o'clock. The second prayer was offered at... Uh, mid-afternoon, about 3 o'clock p.m. Now, the tax collectors, just talking about the second guy, they weren't seen as religious at all. They sold out to Rome for the almighty dollar. The almighty dollar. I almost said daughter there, right? In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said this, talking about, talking about how very least respected, how low on the spiritual totem pole these tax collectors were. Jesus says on the Sermon on the Mount, he says, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. If you love only the people that love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that, right? So he's even saying like, even, the, even, these, even these guys are sort of nice to the people who are nice to them. So if all you do is love the people that love you, you're no better than even this tax collector. So you can tell Jesus is saying, you know, this is not exactly a respected person in Jesus' society. So let's talk about the first one, the first man who goes up to the temple to pray. This is the guy who's the Pharisee. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed. Now notice his prayer here. Notice what he's praying. Notice what he's praying about and see if you can see why this guy may not be in great standing with God. He, the Pharisee says, God, I thank you. Now again, when we say thank you to God, we're usually thanking God for something that he is, like who he is, or thanking God for something that he has done for us, right? Uh, give thanks to the Lord. For he is good, his faithful love endures forever, right? So when we're giving thanks in the, all the biblical prayers, you're thanking God for something he has done. What is this Pharisee thanking God for? God, I thank you that I am not like other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, even like this walking piece of dirt over here, even like this tax collector, right? I thank you that I am not like them. See, the truth of it is, this religious leader, he didn't go up to the temple to pray to God. He went up to the temple to be seen by other people. And by praying out loud, he was just announcing to everybody who could hear him just how good he was. His prayer expresses the essence of Phariseeism. You know, the, the word Pharisee means separated ones, right? So they wanted to be you know, the Bible says, uh, be holy for I am holy. And the word holy means set apart. So if you were a Pharisee, if you are very strict of the strictest sect of the Jewish religion, you were trying to be set, you were trying to set yourself apart under God, unto God. You wanted to live almost as holy a life as any of the priests would live, even if you weren't born into the tribe of priests or Levite. You were trying to live a holy life. In the one sense, that's a good thing. But on the bad sense, the Pharisee means separated under God, but it also means separated from the rest of the riffraff that are out there in society. And so this Pharisee was trying to separate himself, separate from others. I thank you, God, that I'm not like the other people. You know, this guy is a, a typical example of what we call someone who suffers from spiritual pride, right? 
What's the most dangerous about spiritual pride is noted right here at the start. First, if, we, if we're suffering from spiritual pride and we have a little shade of what this Pharisee is praying when he's praying to God, here's the problem. First, we start to trust in our own abilities rather than trusting in God. The second step is we come to regard other people with contempt. In other words, we start saying, wow, God, I think I'm walking pretty good here. I think I'm living a pretty good life. I think I'm, I'm, I'm winning at this game of Christianity. I think, I'm, I, I, I think you're probably pretty proud of me right now. And the way you bolster that spiritual pride is you start looking around and find people in your life who are less spiritual than you, who you think are less committed than you are to God, and you start looking down on them. So we start trusting too much on our own abilities, and second, we start to regard other people with contempt and disrespect rather than seeing them as equal to us created in the image of God, just like we are when we start comparing our spirituality to others. That is bad. Look what else he does. He says, I fast twice a week and I give a tenth of all that I get. So he's back to me, 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 right? I thank you, God, that I'm not like these other people. I'm such a great religious person. In fact, let me tell you, God, how good I am. Uh, as if God doesn't know this, right? You know, he's, he's, God's omniscient. There's no place to hide from God. But he says, God, just, so, just, so, just to remind you, I fast twice a week. And I give a tenth of all that I get, not just my income, not just my net income. Well, I, I give the gross or I, I, even, I even start tithing all the garden spices that I get to God. So he's really tooting his own horn here spiritually. And it's turning into obnoxious self-righteousness, right? Because let me tell you about fasting. By the way, you know, we do fasting and prayer usually at the beginning of the year in January. And we talk about fasting. Sometimes you're fasting. You're going without food. You're, you're denying yourself something because you're trying to pursue God. You're either trying to grow closer to God or you're trying to ask God for something, a spiritual breakthrough in your life or for the life of somebody else, right? So there's a good reason to fast. Uh, but in the Old Testament, I, I didn't know this until I read the commentary. In the Old Testament, there is only one day a year where Jewish people are commanded to fast, does anybody remember what that is? Usually happens in October. Usually happens after Rosh Hashanah, the Jewish New Year. In the Hebrew, it's called Yom Kippur. You would know this if you ever listen to Neil Diamond and the jazz singer because he sings it. It's a really good song. Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. And the Day of Atonement was that one day when all the Jews had to humble themselves before God and fast and pray and ask for God's forgiveness, ask for His mercy because they wanted to be forgiven to start the new year out right, to start the new year with their slate clean spiritually before God. So they only had to, they were only required to fast once a year, but the Pharisees up the ante. So the Pharisee says, well, we're not just going to fast uh, once a year, we're going to fast on Mondays. And then, you know, that's good, okay. Well, let's up the ante from that. Let's also fast on Thursdays. So they fasted twice a week and gave a tenth of all that they, of all that they earned to God. Now again, is, is uh, tithing a good thing to do? Of course it's a good thing to do. God wants us to give 10% uh, of our income to him to help uh, build the kingdom of God. That's a good thing to do. But giving that money or fasting in that way those things in, in and of themselves, they don't make us righteous before God. They don't make God say, well, now I love you. 
because I see that you're doing these good religious things for me. That's not how we get God's favor. So looking at the way he prayed, this Pharisee, this religious leader, he's sure that he's a blessing to God, right? Clearly, God's program could hardly advance without this man's contribution. In fact, his prayer's form is revealing. Because I said, you know, normally we thank God for what he's done, but he twists the thanksgiving prayer into a bragging session of what he's done for God. His real prayer is, God, I thank you that I am so marvelous. In his own, quote, humble eyes, he's not unrighteous at all. He doesn't need forgiveness or anything. He doesn't need God's mercy. Uh, he's fasting beyond the call of duty. He's giving his income to God. God needs to do nothing for him. This religious man has done it all. And he's trusting in his own self-righteousness. And boy, is that a dangerous place to be. Trusting in your own self-righteousness. The truth is, trusting in your own moral goodness before God is dangerous. It is dangerous. Now, if you have your bulletins, this is where you want to say, hey, break out your bulletins. It's time to fill in the blanks. Trusting in your own moral righteousness before God is dangerous. Why? First of all, number one, it leads to pride. It leads to pride. And everybody, it's like bad breath. Everybody around can tell you that you have it, but you're the, you're the one who's least aware of it, right? It leads to pride. It leads to self-sufficiently, su sufficiency. It leads to say, what have I done or what am I doing that makes me so great, such a wonderful person. It leads to pride. Second, trusting in your own moral goodness causes a person to despise or to look down on others. God doesn't want us to compare ourselves with other people. We're running our own race. In fact, God talks about this running this race. It says, you know, casting off all the restraints and the sin that so easily entangles us, right? Each of us is to run the race. God has a course marked out for us. The course that God has marked out for you may not be the same course that somebody else is running. You may look around and say, God, why is my course so challenging? Why is my course so hard? Why don't these people, these people seem to be blessed all the time. They seem, they don't seem to go through any hardships. Why am I the one? <laughs> you know, back to, you know, poor me or, or but it, it, it all stems from comparing myself to other people and God doesn't want us to do that. And then third, trusting in your own moral goodness, it prevents him or her from learning anything about God. It's what I say about a know-it-all, right? What can you tell a know-it-all who already knows it all? right? You can't tell me anything. I already know it. Uh, in fact, this was, this was one of the funniest things in the family. It was actually a dramatic moment, but I have a nephew, and he's super smart. I mean, he graduated top of his class in Cal Poly San Luis Obispo in mechanical engineering. He's a great engineer now, super smart, and he has humbled himself now. He's a follower of Jesus, so it's great, but when he was a kid, this kid was a know-it-all, and his mom would, would be telling him something. I'm not going to say his name, but because <laughs> this is probably being recorded. And, and it'll come back to bite me. So, so this kid, anyway, I'll, I'll just say, hey, kid. You know, he, he's like, I know, I know, I know. And his mom is telling him things like, uh, did you know that the gas station is only open, you know, six days a week? Or did you know that Chick-fil-A is only open six days a week? It's not open on Sunday. I know, I know, I know. No matter what his mom told, told him, he would just say, I know. I know. Finally, she stopped him. She got so flustered. And she said, your name, parentheses, 
She says, you don't know it all. You don't know everything. She was so angry. And we, were, we just started laughing. I mean, it was almost comical. Because I could just see the frustration in the mom trying to help their, their, their kid get, you know, get ahead in life and learn a few things. And part of what wisdom is, you know, it says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Uh, the, where we start to grow spiritually is when we're first aware of our own deficits, you know, when I know what I don't know, when I realize I'm not all that good, when I realize how much I need God in my life, there's the beginning where God can say, now you're in a place where I can communicate with you. Now you're in a place where I can use you. But if you're a spiritual know-it-all, you can't learn from anybody else, and you're certainly not going to be willing to listen to God. You're just going to start telling God how to run the universe. Bad place to be. Let's go to the, the other man, because there, there's the spiritual proud person, the Pharisee, the religious leader, the one who is self-sufficient spiritually in their own religious performance. Let's go over to the other guy here, the tax collector. It says, verse 13, but the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but he beat his breast and he said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. You know, it's interesting, have mercy on me, that phrase right there in verse 13. It's found in one other place in the New Testament. It's found in a verb that's used in a different way. It's found in a place where it's talking about confessing our sins because it's found in 1 John. So in 1 John 1, 9, it says, but if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And it says, but if we do sin, we have an advocate before the Father. You remember this in 1 John 2? And it says, Jesus Christ, the righteous, who is the, and, and some of the translations say, who is the propitiation for our sins, who is the expiation for our sins. And you're thinking, hey, you got any other words? Because those words didn't register. Propitiation, expiation. Who is, the, who is the atoning sacrifice for our sins? You say, okay, strike one, strike two, strike three. Let me try to say it as simple as I know. Jesus is the one who when he gave his life on the cross, he satisfied all the wrath of God in the punishment for sin. Jesus did that for us. So when this man is saying, God, have mercy on me, a sinner, what he's saying is, God, I have no chance at all to be righteous before you. I am a spiritual failure. And the only way that I'll ever receive forgiveness is if you, in your own goodness, in your own character, if you decide that you will have mercy on me. And Jesus said, guess which of the two? Two men went up to pray to the temple. Only one of them came back justified before God. Guess which one was justified before God? It was the one who realized his own spiritual poverty. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for they, shall, they will receive the kingdom of heaven. When we realize we have nothing offered to God, nothing in my hand I bring, only to the cross I cling. When we come to God humbly in that way, God have mercy on me, a sinner. There, instead of trying to plead our own good case, God, here's what I'm trying to do for you. Here's the sin that I tried to avoid. Did you see that temptation that I avoided last week? You know, instead of coming to God and saying, do you, you know, have I earned my way into your favor now? 
He just says, no, God, please have mercy on me, a sinner. I know, in other words, according to your character, who is merciful? God, you're merciful. You're long-suffering. You're slow to anger. You're abounding in love. God, I'm counting on that character. I need that, your character in my life if I'm going to be righteous before you, if I'm going to be forgiven, if you're going to show your goodness to me. It can't be based upon my own performance, my own track record. So the tax collector asks for mercy. He doesn't rest on any spiritual um, morals at all. And what does Jesus say? In verse 14, the next verse, it says, I tell you that, I tell you that this man, talking about the tax collector, who, all, who couldn't even look up to heaven, who was just humbling himself before God, God, please be merciful to me, a sinner, that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. And here's the principle, and Jesus says this over and over and over. This is full, if you want to read one of these phrases that says, does the Bible say this phrase in many different ways? This is a phrase that is repeated often in the Bible. It says, for all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Peter says it this way, all of you, in 1 Peter chapter 5, all of you, Clothe yourselves with humility toward one another, right? In other words, how do we walk around? How do we act toward each other? What face do we present toward other people? Clothe yourselves with humility toward one another because God opposes the proud. If you want to, know, if you want to, say, if you want to say, well, how could I act in such a way to earn God's wrath? I don't know why anybody would even want to find out the answer to this question. But let's just say, what is the exact way to act to not get God's favor? The, the exact way to act to get his opposition. God opposes the proud, those who exalt themselves. But look at this promise. But he gives grace to the humble. He gives grace to the humble. And now here's the remedy because Peter says, okay, so if God's going to give grace to the humble, what are you and I to do? He says, so humble yourselves under the mighty power of God. And at the right time, he will lift you up in honor. The trouble with the Pharisee was he was trying to lift himself up in honor. He was trying to say, I'm going to do it myself. I will do enough religious good. I will perform enough religious rituals. I will avoid enough sin. And therefore, God will love me and accept me. And I will earn my way into his kingdom favor. And, the, and Jesus is trying to say, look, before I go to the cross, two weeks from now, a week from now, we're going to be talking about Palm Sunday, Jesus going into Jerusalem uh, humbly on a donkey for the last time. Um, before Jesus gets to Jerusalem, he's trying to communicate spiritual truth. And he's saying, look, the spiritually proud people, the ones that are self-sufficient, they are not going to be the ones that are made righteous before God. Because if a person is full of themselves and their own spiritual pride, why would you ever look to Jesus? Why would you ever say, Jesus, have mercy on me, a sinner? Jesus, I'm not trusting in myself and my own goodness. I'm trusting in what you have done for me. Why would anybody look to Jesus if you're full of yourself? And so that's why we have to empty ourselves of our pride. We have to humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God so that he will lift us up at the right time. So there's the peril, there are the perils of pride. It is dangerous to our own souls to live in self-righteousness. Pride is all about our own religious performance. And when we do, we get, 
we get full of ourselves, we start looking down on other people who don't measure up to our own standard. We feel better about ourselves and says, oh God, I'm so glad I'm not living like that person. Compared to him or her, I'm living a great life. God, you're lucky to have me on your team. Spiritual pride prevents us from being able to learn anything from anybody else. As I said before, what can you tell a know-it-all that they already seem to think they know? You know, so they're, what do they tell? So what happens if somebody gathers up enough courage to go share some spiritual truth? If somebody goes up and says, you know, like I said, pride is like bad breath. Somebody goes up and says, Ew, man, you need a mint. You know, you got some bad breath, bro. You, can I offer you a stick of gum in Jesus' name as an act of charity and to save myself some, some olfactory grief? Can I, can I do that? And, and the person's like, shit, you know, shut up, get out of here, go away. Who are you? And here's another sign of spiritual pride. Who are you to tell me how to live? There's another sign of spiritual pride. Graham Greene is a British author of the last of the 20th century. When I was a senior in high school, I read one of his books. It was a book about a priest in Mexico. I think it was in the 1930s. And at the time, this government had taken over Mexico. The government was like communist, atheist, and they were trying to eradicate. Can you imagine this in Mexico? They were trying to eradicate Catholicism in Mexico. And so there's a story about a priest who is on the run from uh, people who were chasing him down. The army was chasing him down, trying to get rid of all the religious leaders, trying to execute all the priests in the land. And for eight years, he, he was on the run. He was successfully avoiding capture from this one lieutenant. Kind of sounds a little bit like Les Miserables. A little. But, but the, so, uh, so the, the lieutenant's chasing this guy and he's on the run and he's taking confessions and he's offering communion, but he's also a fallen priest. And he's also full of himself. And he also breaks most of the rules for priests. And Graham Greene, talking about this in The Power of the Glory, um, as he is running from the government, he's reflecting on his own life. And the priest, he knows his faults. He doubts the good that he's really doing because he's such a hypocrite. And in summing up his own life, the priest reflected, pride is what made the angels fall. Pride is the worst thing of all. I thought I was a fine fellow to have stayed when all the other priests had gone. And then I thought I was so grand that I could make my own rules. That's a hard place to be. You know, it's hard to be filled with the Holy Spirit when you're full of yourself, right? So what better example? If Jesus says two men went up to pray and only one of them came back in a right relationship with God, which of the two is right before God? The one who is spiritually proud? Eh, wrong. The one who is spiritually humble. And by the way, Jesus, knowing that he's going to the cross, can you imagine saying, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but everyone who humbles themselves before God will be lifted up. And then Jesus, knowing that he is, he's not just, he's not just our savior, he's our model, he's our example. You know, his followers called him rabbi because rabbi meant the kind of teacher who was, who was modeling the life that I want to live. And I want to follow myself. I want to cover myself in the dust of the rabbis uh, uh, that, that I want to. Okay, let me put it this way. I want to cover myself as the rabbis walking along with the sandals and they're kicking up dust from the road. I want to cover myself in the dust from my rabbi's feet. That was what a good Jewish disciple did. 
right? So Jesus is now, he's not just our teacher, he's our example for everything. What better model of humility is there than Jesus himself? Look what it says. Talking about those who exalt themselves will be humbled, but those who humble themselves will be exalted. Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage, but rather he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant and being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself, becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. There is no greater example of humility than the example of Jesus Christ. And you know why? Because you're starting at the greatest of the great and he's making himself the lowest of the low because somebody who died on a Roman cross was the worst of the criminals in Roman society. That was the one that they wanted to make suffer, the ones that they wanted to cause immense pain to, the ones they wanted to uh, show as an example to the rest of society that says, if you ever act like this criminal acts, we're gonna put you up on a cross too. And so Jesus died that death for us, humbling himself, staying on the cross out of his love, for us out of knowing that if he didn't go through with that, that we would not be able to enter into a right relationship with God. And that's why Jesus is worthy of everything. And that's why it says in verse uh, 9, 10, and 11, it says, therefore, this is in Philippians 2, therefore God exalted him to the highest place. You know where I found this verse? I looked up exalted in the New Testament. I said, where is exalted mentioned? And it's almost always mentioned in uh, it's all in tandem. Exalted is mentioned in tandem with humbling, with humility and exaltation. Jesus humbled himself and then look what God did. Therefore, God exalted him, Jesus, to the highest place, gave him the name that's above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord. You know, that's one of the places we go to in humility. Anybody who is a true Christian cannot have the attitude of that Pharisee. Anybody who is a true follower of Christ cannot have a self-sufficient spiritual attitude. It can only have the attitude of, wow, I am in a right relationship with God because of Jesus, because of what he's done for me, not because of what I do for God, but because of what Jesus has done for me. There's where God wants us, and that's why Jesus says, Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, but whoever humbles himself will be exalted. There's Jesus. So here's the question, guys. Where are you today? Where are you today in your heart? Because sometimes it's not like, well, I'm not, I'm not like the Pharisee. I'm not tooting my own spiritual horn all the time. But I, I had to check myself this week and the last week because I started studying this and trying to be more aware of this. You know that whole thing about not the part where the Pharisee says, hey, uh, I thank you that I'm not like these other people. I'm not like these robbers and evildoers and corruptors and adulterers. I'm not like them at all. Or even like that guy, that tax collector. I have to every once in a while, uh, you, you know how you walk around and you just, you're, you're watching people and you see people and you see people and the way they look and the way they act and, and who they're around and how they comport themselves. And sometimes you just get that like, ah, 
God, I'm really glad I'm not like that person. You know? and, and when I get that moment, when I get to that one moment where you start looking down on somebody else, um, and it goes both ways. It, you don't want to envy somebody that you think is doing better than you or, or looks better than you, none of that. Or, but you also don't want to look down on anybody either because God made them in their image too and everybody is precious to God and everybody's got their own spiritual walk. So that's why the Bible says, don't compare yourselves to other people. Walk, walk the path that God has made for you and walk the path that God has made for me. So are you ready? Are you ready to humble yourselves? Maybe today is the day for you where you are ready to enter into a right relationship with God. Whether, you're, whether a day in which you're ready to stop trying to rely on yourself and your own spiritual performance and you're ready to just fling all that aside and, and beat your breast before God and say, nothing in my hands I cling. God, Jesus, I'm not relying on anything else except your mercy and your grace and I fall at your feet, and I worship you. If you're ready to do that, let's, let's pray together. <clears throat> Lord, your word tells us that you are opposed to those who are proud. And so, Lord, we don't want to be like that at all. We, we come to you in humility. We come to you uh, with hearts that are aware of our own shortcomings, um, Lord, you know all things. You know exactly the kind of life that we lead or have led, Lord. But thank you that today we see the truth, that if we come humbly before you, you say whoever humbles himself before you can be exalted. And so, Lord, we are not trusting in anything else other than in your son, Jesus. Thank you that you sent him, that he gave his life for us on Calvary so that we could have a brand new life free from the shackles of sin and death. Thank you for the hope that we have in Jesus. And Lord, we put our trust fully in Jesus Christ, leaning wholly on him, nothing in ourselves, Lord. We don't have any righteousness to offer you. The only righteousness we have is that which you can give us through Jesus. And we embrace him today. Lord, help us to walk in humility. Help us to be in some ways like that tax collector that just comes before you and says, Lord, I'm relying on your mercy because you said that's the person that walked away justified before God. So Lord, we trust and we put our, our trust in you and you alone. Thank you. that That's the best place to be. Thank you that, that you love us and you lift us up and you put our feet on solid ground, and you give us a hope and a future, and a better world's coming for us because we are in your Son, who is the resurrection and the life. And we love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.